Luke, the third book in the New Testament. We've been kind of digging our way through this since the uh, first of the year, this incredible gospel that Luke has uh, penned for us, the beloved physician. And uh, I think we've seen that he's uh, been an amazing historian, but I hope more so that we see that Luke is even more an amazing theologian. In just a few short verses that we've looked at so far, we've seen the mercy of God, and we've seen the omniscience of God, we've seen the power of God, we've seen the kindness of God, and we've seen the faithfulness of God in bringing about his plan of redemption for mankind. Uh, First of all, by supernaturally bringing about the birth of John the Baptist, and then as we're going to see over these next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to see how he's bringing about the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're looking at uh, Luke 1. Verses 26 through 38 is where we're going to read again today. Uh, We are going to go through one verse today. Every time I I start to prepare, I don't really outline. I know like in in, uh, college, they will teach me how to outline, diagram, all this kind of stuff. Uh, I go week to week. I dig through it. I see uh, and kind of meditate on it through the week. And uh, so uh, I know it's kind of painful for my children sometimes, but we're going through one verse this morning. So Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. If you're able to stand this morning with us for the reading of God's word, let's do that this morning. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. God's word says this, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your magnificent word, how it consoles us and guides us. And by it, we can know more about you, Lord. So this morning, Lord, help our hearts and ears and minds be ready and prepared and cultivated to harvest what you have for us here this morning. God, we just want to praise you and give you all the glory and the honor. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we do pray. Amen. 
You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned uh, last week, we were transitioning from the narrative of the birth of John the Baptist, uh, the one who would sort of pave the way for the Lord and be the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, to the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we looked at the preliminary details about this account, uh, we saw that there were some similarities in the way that the Lord brought about the announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both births would be brought about by women. And in case you're wondering this morning, and I know Steve has been really just itching to know about this, uh, what would be taught, uh, Grace Fellowship Church does not hold to the doctrine of ex partu. That's a Latin term meaning that Jesus uh, did not pass through the birth canal of Mary. I know it's kind of disappointing, Steve. Augustine held this view. Basically, they said that Jesus came through the side of Mary. And what would happen was Mary would be a perpetual virgin. We do not hold to that, just in case you were out there just wondering this morning. So we do not hold to the doctrine of perpetual virginity. So anyway, both births would be, or be brought about by women. Both births would be announced by the angel Gabriel. Both conceptions would be supernatural and both conceptions would involve the Holy Spirit. And so not only would there be similarities between these two accounts, but there would be some great contrast that we saw last week about the, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and bringing about of the good news of the birth of our Lord. Whereas John the Baptist's birth announcement would come to Zacharias, a priest. But Jesus' birth announcement would be brought to a young virgin named Mary, where John the Baptist's announcement would be made during a public worship service, Jesus' announcement would be made privately. And where John the Baptist's announcement would have been made in the temple in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, Jesus' birth announcement would be in Nazareth, an obscure village in Galilee where many Gentiles would have lived. We're reminded from last week that this is sometimes how God operates. Sometimes he operates in the quiet, serene simplicity. And instead of bursting forth into humanity with great fanfare and wonders and whirlwinds and fire and all these things, he instead closed himself in humanity by coming to a young woman in a remote village in an unadorned package of simplicity. He didn't come with trumpets blaring. He didn't come seated on a white horse with his eyes as flames of fire and wearing a robe dipped in blood. He didn't come with a crown that had many diadems on his head. He didn't come with the armies which are in heaven. He didn't come riding on clouds in all of his glory and power and majesty. But you know what? Someday he will. When he comes back, that's exactly how he will come. Instead, he came as a babe. He simply came as a child. Instead of displaying his full divinity and his majesty for all the world to see, he came as one who would enter into the world as a bond slave of the Lord. Philippians 2, 5 and 8 says this. We read this last week. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus did not demand all the rights and privileges of the divinity, but rather he entered into this world and he voluntarily set them aside, his divine attributes. God in the flesh, born of a woman, entered humanity as a child, not with flashes of lightning and earthquakes and smoke and fire and mountains melting away like wax, but by coming as a simple babe through the womb of Mary. Theologically, we call this the doctrine of the incarnation, God the Son taking on human nature, the incarnation. This literally just destroys deism. I know my son Josh said he ran into one on the internet recently, somebody that believes that God built a clock, wound it up, and then stepped back. This absolutely destroys deism, the belief that God created the world. He set it into motion, and he's not doing anything about it. He's just kind of watching to see what happens. When we talk about God the Son taking on human form in the person of Jesus Christ and coming to rescue mankind, a deist really has nothing left to stand on. They would have to go on denying the fact, those things that I gave you last week, the testimonies and the historical accounts, both Jewish historians and Roman historians and Greek historians, and the testimony of the gospel writers themselves. They would have to deny the fact that Jesus ever existed and was who he claimed to be in order to maintain their position. But we saw how Jesus came in the beauty and the simplicity as a child through the virgin who was called Mary. We also saw last week how Jesus was born of the lineage and the descendants of David, as verse 27 told us. We saw how both the Old Testament writers of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the New Testament writers of Matthew and Paul and John and all write and emphasize the fact that Jesus was indeed of the line of David. And we saw the importance of that. We saw how it showed the faithfulness of our God, our covenantal God. It showed that we serve a God who's not slack concerning his promises, as some would consider slackness, but he was faithful to fulfill the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so when God covenanted with David to bring forth the Messiah through his lineage and establish his throne forever, we saw that there is only one person that could ever fulfill that role, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon was a great king. He had lots of money and power and and wives and all those types of things. And he was seen as great, but Solomon was not the promised one. He had many, many shortcomings. Jesus Christ is the greatest king, and no one will come after him that is greater. And it thus demonstrates the faithfulness of our God. And then we also saw how the fact that Jesus being of the lineage of David was necessary to demonstrate his humanity. And now, why was that important to us? Well, it was important the fact that he was tempted, yet without sin. And he's able to help us who is tempted, who are tempted. It was important in the fact that he demonstrated perfect obedience for us, and thus to be an example for us. It was important in the fact that Jesus Christ was able to become the mediator between both God and man. And it was important that he was able, in fact, to make atonement for sin. Now, what we didn't cover last week in verse 27 is that Luke makes no mention of the character of either Joseph 
or Mary, quite like he does with Zacharias and Elizabeth back in verse 6, right? Verse 6 tells us that Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And so we have this other contrast yet. We're simply told that Joseph was of the descendants of David and Mary was a virgin. Now, we will see by nature of Mary's response later on to this angelic messenger that the bursting forth of praise that she has in verse 46 and 55, that she is in fact righteous and obedient as her verbal testimony will prove. But Luke doesn't ascribe anything to her here. It doesn't make us think that Mary is a noteworthy young woman in this text right here. We, we know two things about her thus far. She's a chaste woman, and she's engaged to Joseph. That's all we know. That's all he tells us right now. Yet within Catholic circles and Catholic traditions, Mary is elevated so much that she's even prayed to, she's worshipped, and she's glorified even above Jesus Christ. This, this, uh, just as there are biblical disciplines as ecclesiology or a biblical understanding of the church or eschatology, a biblical understanding of end times, the Catholic, within Catholic circles there is Mariology, the study of Mary, or so-called a biblical understanding thereof. But the unfortunate thing about this is that there's just an incredible amount of biblical heresy when you read of those who hold to the Catholic tradition of the veneration of Mary. For example, and as I mentioned earlier, the Catholic Church has taught that Mary was in a perpetual state of virginity. She didn't birth Jesus through the birth canal like natural means, ex parto, out of the side, right? He came out of the gut of Mary, I guess you want to call it. And so, meaning... She's in this perpetual state of virginity, and then so she never really had any kind of relations with Joseph later on as well. But contrary to that, Scripture teaches us that Mary and Joseph actually did have children and, and that they did have several of them together. Uh, the Catholic Church has also taught that Mary was born herself of immaculate conception, that, meaning that she was born miraculously of God in order for her not to have any sin to transmit to Jesus. Again, Scripture does not teach us that she was miraculously born or conceived herself. And then probably the most heretical of all Mariology viewpoints is the view that Mary is a co-mediatrix, or she's salvation right beside Jesus. This is what you'll frequently see, these statues of Mary and holding this young baby Jesus, right, of the Catholic Church. If you ever heard of the prayers of the rosary, they pray to Mary to intercede to Jesus on our behalf. Again, the scripture tells us that there is one mediator between man and God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Mary. Now, we could go on and on about the Catholic Church and the false teachings about the worship of Mary. But just know, if you're ever in Orlando and you're driving on I-4 South and you look to your left and you see Mary, Queen of the Universe, Catholic Church, on the east side of the highway, they hold the Mariology big time, okay? You can read their theological reflections on their website and they're like these two or three paragraph things. But of the 15 different theological reflections they have on their website... Guess how many is about Mary? Twelve. Twelve of them are about Mary. All right? So enough about that. Let's dig into our text a little bit today. First of all, it says in Luke 1, verse 28, it says, And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. 
the Lord is with you. Now, first of all, we, we see that once again, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to deliver a message. Not to an old man, but this time to young virgin. Now, as we mentioned this before, this is the second time that God has broke, or God has broke his silence in the 400-year period. And so it's very obviously in coming in with this account again. We can assume that Mary was most likely at home. We don't know this for a fact, but in Nazareth, uh, we can kind of assume that she was at home, maybe preparing food or, or whatever, or something of that nature, because you just didn't run down to Kroger. You didn't just pop over to Culver's and buy a butter burger in the first century. A lot of your time was consumed in preparing food. But probably most likely, she was preparing one of the two meals of the day that was eaten by the people in the first century. And with bread being one of those staple meals or those staple items, there'd be a little bit of labor in getting that together. You just didn't throw things into a bread machine and walk away. You were the bread machine. And so once again, the angel of the Lord speaks to Mary and he says, hello. Greetings, hello. Very plainly he says, hello. The Greek word here is hairo which is translated rejoice or be well and thrive or salutations. It almost makes you think about a Star Trek thing or something, right? Be well and thrive. Again, there's no hype. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no hype. There's no fanfare here. There's just the simple greeting, hello. It doesn't tell us that Mary's troubled. It doesn't tell us that she's gripped with fear like it does Zacharias. But when this angel appears... He simply says to her, hello. And then he adds, greetings, favored one. Now, this is where the Catholic Church will take this verse, and they erroneously translate it, and then build a whole doctrine around it, right? Catholics interpret this verse from the Latin Vulgate version translation that says, Hail Mary, full of grace, right? Now, as we mentioned before, There's a whole slew of false doctrines built upon Mary, and this is one of them. They argue that since Mary is full of grace, right, meaning that she's just overflowing with grace to dispense, she's just full of the grace of God. She's got more bullets than Tackleberry Comstock. I mean, she's just overbearing with grace that she can't contain it all. She's got more grace than she can handle, so she needs to dispense it. To anyone who will ask of her, you pray to Mary, and she'll give you the grace. Beloved, there is only one source of grace, and that is the grace is from God alone. Mary is not the dispenser of grace. She doesn't hear your prayers. She doesn't give anyone anything. Jesus didn't teach that when you pray, you say, Hail Mary, full of grace, pray for us. What did he say in Matthew 6? He said, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven given our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Not once did Jesus Christ instruct us or tell us that we need to pray to Mary. Ask Mary for anything, or have Mary pray for us, or anything else like the Catholic Church teaches about this verse. 
we are to pray to our Father in heaven and ask him for grace, not Mary. She is the receiver of grace, just like you and I are the receiver of God's grace. She's not the dispenser of grace. The saints aren't the dispensers of grace. I'm not the dispenser of grace. We're all recipients of grace because we're all sinners. Only God can dispense grace. Only God can hear your prayers. And by declaring to her that she is the favored one, the angel is essentially saying to Mary that she is an object of God's favor. Much like John the Baptist would be a special prophet of God, Mary would be the chosen vessel by which God would bring Jesus into this world. Now, the Greek word here for favored one is only used three times in two verses in the entire New Testament. The Greek word is pronounced harestao, harestao, the root word being hares, which means grace. Now, I know all of you, that's very, very familiar to you because you remember from our grace sermons back last year. You have that already memorized. But the word is hares. The word that we're using here in this verse, favored one, literally means to make graceful or to honor with blessing. The angel of the Lord uses it here to describe Mary. But you know who else is a special object of God's favor? You and I as believers. That's right. Paul uses it to describe you and I as the redeemed in Christ in Ephesians 1, verse 6. I love Ephesians 1. It's one huge sentence in the Greek. But if you want to flip over and just read this with me, Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 3 to part of uh, 8. As again, as I said, this is one sentence from verse 3 to 14 in the Greek. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Verse 6 is where we find this word. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. You see, the undeserved riches of Jesus Christ, the divine mercy of God, the unmerited favor of our Lord was done because just like Mary, you and I were the special object of God's favor. You think about that for a minute. That's pretty powerful. You and I, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are a special object of God's favor. Instead of standing condemned and in the judgment of God because of your sin and because of the substitutionary atoning work of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, you and I can stand blameless before the Lord because of the righteousness we have in Jesus Christ. And all of that was done 
because God chose you in eternity past. He redeemed you in the present as a believer so that you can glorify him now and in the future do it for all eternity. If you're a believer, if you're a child of God, you are a favored one, just like Mary. And then lastly, in verse 28, he says this, and I, I, I just could not stop but look at this verse right here. These five words are just so powerful to me. Verse 28, he says, The Lord is with you. Now, why is that important? Why would the angel need to tell Mary that the Lord is with her? We're essentially talking about the presence of God, right? Why does God need to be present with Mary? Well, you see, the news that Mary is about to receive as an unmarried young virgin girl in this culture, it would have been punishable by death, by stoning. Men from the city could stone her to death, justifiably. And so, very simply, only with the presence of God will Mary be able to accomplish all that God has planned for her. It's pretty basic, right? We've seen this in the Old Testament in Exodus 3. I want you to turn back there with me to Exodus 3. Find Genesis, the first book, Exodus, the second book. We're looking at chapter 3. Exodus 3, God is going to speak to Moses from the burning bush that was not being consumed by the fire. And God is going to tell Moses all that God is about to do for his people who are in bondage in Egypt. And just like Gabriel is going to about to tell Mary all that God is going to do for his people who are in spiritual bondage, right? God is going to commission Moses to go speak to Pharaoh so that he can bring his people out of Egypt. So starting in verse 10 of Exodus 3, he says this, Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, in verse 12, And he said, Certainly I will be with you. Notice that God hasn't told Moses his name yet. He doesn't do that until verse 14 of Exodus 3. But when Moses expresses this lack of confidence in himself to be able to go to Pharaoh, how does God answer him? He says, I will be with you. You see, Moses' question was in reference to himself. Who am I? But how does God answer? He references himself. God answers his question. He says, you are who you are because I am with you. You're my man. I'm covenanting with you. I'm promising you that I am going to be there. When you go to confront Pharaoh, you will be God's man because I'm there to stand with you. God is essentially saying that with my presence, I will exercise my control and my authority over Pharaoh. In Isaiah 7, uh, verse 14, we have the prophecy of the virgin birth, but at the end of that scripture is the name that the Messiah will also be. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign... Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name, what? Emmanuel, right? Meaning, literally, God with us. 
And in Matthew 28, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, what was one of the last things he says in that? He says, I am with you even to the end of the age. The presence of God. And so when the disciples and all the believers after that were commissioned by Jesus to go make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them all the things that, uh, to observe all that I've commanded, how were they able to, to supposed to be able to do that? How are you and I able to supposed to be able to do that? It's only because the presence of God is with us. Only because Jesus will be with us. And in the future, what do we have to look forward to? That Jesus will be with us also. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so, listen to this, we shall always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then last in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain, the first things have passed away. You see, there's a lot of people in this world, they wouldn't mind having a heaven without Jesus Christ. If he wasn't there, no big deal. They take the pain-free, the worry-free, the carefree heaven, even if Jesus Christ wasn't there. Just like the Israelites, they wouldn't mind if they made it to the promised land without God's presence among them. Many people today would take a heaven with or without Jesus Christ. And when you start to ask yourself this question, why do you want to go to heaven? Why do you want to be there? Is it so you'll have no more tears? Is it so that you won't have any more pain and suffering in this world? Is it so you can run around on those streets of gold and, and the mansion with many rooms? Is it so you can escape the sufferings and the heartaches and the sadness of this present depraved world? What's your motivation for wanting to go to heaven? Or... Is your motivation to go to heaven, is it because Jesus is going to be there? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. You see, a heaven without Jesus Christ there is really no heaven at all. It's nothing. You can only have all of those things if God is with us. You can only have a pain-free and worry-free and depression-free and heartache-free heaven if Jesus Christ is with you there. Because if Jesus Christ is with you there, you will have everything you will ever possibly need for all of eternity. You will have the greatest desire and the greatest fulfillment your soul could ever have. So it's important that the angel tells Mary 
that the Lord is with her so that she will be able to accomplish what God has planned for her. So this morning, do you know that God is with you as a believer? That's what he promised in Matthew 28. And do you know that because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer, that God is with you just like he was with Mary, and that you will be able to accomplish all he has for you? There's some days we've, we just want to throw our hands up in the air and give up, isn't it? Maybe this morning you're not so sure that God is with you right now. Is it because of sin? Because essentially what sin is, is the absence of delight in God. And maybe it's because you've stopped delighting in God that you feel distant from Him. Or maybe you've stopped talking him, talking to Him. 1 Peter 5, 7 says that we're to cast all of our anxiety upon him because he cares for you. He knows us. He knows what we need even before we ask of him. We're called to pray without ceasing. Yet, how many of us won't even stop to pray? If you're a believer this morning, just know that the Lord is with you, just like he was with Mary. And what seemingly feels like impossible situations for us and sometimes, just consider that God was able to prevent Mary from being stoned to death and Jesus from being slaughtered by Herod. See, we serve a very mighty, compassionate, and sovereign God. One of my favorite verses is Proverbs 3.5. And it says we are to do this, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. See, God is with us. We have great access as believers because God is with us just like he was with Mary. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your presence in our lives, Lord. And so many times... We, we don't feel like you're there. And more so, Lord, it's because of us. It's not because you've gone anywhere. It's not because you've moved. But Lord, help us to understand that when things seem impossible, things seem hopeless, we get frustrated with life to know that you are there and that you care for us and you love us. And you know everything we need, even before we speak it, Lord. Lord, just help us to have a fresh awareness of your presence in our lives, Lord. Help us to study your word. Help us to seek after you with all of our heart, mind, and strength, God. We just pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.